in Chewing the Fat, Karima Moyer-Noki has interviewed 18 women who lived through Italian fascism. She talks to them about their daily life, their culture, their food, and recipes. She dispels myths about Italian food and talks about the real Italian food. Have a listen. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Karima Moyer-Noki. She is the author of a terrific book called Chewing the Fat, an oral history of Italian foodways from fascism to dolce vita. Welcome, Karima. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Liz. It's wonderful to be here. So I have to tell you how much I really enjoyed this book. It's kind of a fat book. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to plow through this whole book. And I just (laughs) went through it in no time. It was just that fascinating. I really want you to tell us what the book is about and how you got the idea. The book is based on interviews that I did with women in their 90s who throughout the peninsula of Italy from north to south and including some of the former territories of Italy, particularly Libya and Istria. Um, I tried to cover in my interviews people from large cities, small towns, various socioeconomic a kind of stratum, for example, there's a countess and then a carbonaia, who is someone who was uh, lived in the mountains and produced coal. So people from all walks of life. But what I wanted to do is recreate an, a, a vision of, and not exactly the history of, but a vision of the fascist era, which I think Anglophones are really quite unaware of as it's sort of a a gap in in our knowledge and history, but also through that, looking at that through the lens of food. And initially I had set out to understand the deification of Italian food that has been happening since I've lived in Italy. I uh, came to live in Italy 30 years ago So, um, and as a culinary historian, watched that development myself in part and of of the creation of the, in, in quotation marks, Italian cuisine. But that there were still women who were living who knew of a time before that, before that cuisine, when the relationship with food was different. And it was so, it was so vastly different. It was that this mythology had been created around a quote unquote Italian cuisine, 
that I thought even myself as a historian, that I knew what the myths were and discovered that I too had bought into so many of these ideas that we have about, about Italian cuisine. And so I wanted to, on, on various levels, get into the lives of these women, um, give an understanding of Italy and fascism, which is something that is not spoken about here as well, and to, to a show how these, these various myths developed and what, what the landscape was like, the foodscape was like before um, the advent of what I call the, the nostalgia industry. So what do you think the influence of fascism on food was in Italy? There's, there's um, something about, there's something that, that uh, the exploitation of food systems and people who had food and the way that, that the sociology was set up for people who worked on farms, people who lived in a sort of a serfdom situation, um, huge, almost industrial sort of situation farms, great landowners, the food abuse that was going on is not something that was about fascism, really. So I don't want to, didn't want to say that all of that wasn't, didn't exist before fascism came in. No, I would in think fact, it would, yes. Yeah, yeah that, that um, so, so that was going on. That is the history of, of food in Italy, because I've also written another book called The Eternal Table, a cultural history of food in Rome, where I go through 2,500 years of Roman history and, and the, the relationship of people to food, the food ways, the sociology, politics, anthropology, um, all, all of that in the food ways that's going on. But then there's another layer, which is the fascist period. So you end up, you end World War One. people are coming back. There is widespread rioting going on because jobs were promised to people if they had gone off to war, they did go off to war and there were, there were no jobs, there was no bread, people were not eating, which made it easy for fascism to come in, um, saying that they were going to resolve the problem. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that were implemented were, for example, this battle for wheat, where the government um, is set up in 1925, fascism begins in 1922, so that just to make sure that everyone was getting the very coveted white bread, no one was, was depending on breads made with other grains or breads made with, um, that, that weren't refined white, white flour because that had always historically been the go-to bread. That meant that you had arrived. That meant that you were someone if you were eating that bread. But then, but then fascism, one thing that was very important about fascism is that it, it encouraged, the way that it, in, that it influenced then this development of Italian cuisine is that um, you begin this look away from France and inward looking at, at, at Italy 
they're aiming towards this autarky, which is self-sufficiency in order to be able to go on and do what they want and establish their colonies in North Africa and, and et cetera. And that required a veneration of Italian food, which it seems strange to us that Italians need any kind of encouragement or anyone to be proud of their food. But the food that they were looking towards as the ideal was French culinary culture. And that's something that changed under, under fascism, was the look at the country and valorizing what were former, formerly uh, um, kind of uh, what, what's even called the cucina povera today, right. the poor cuisine. Uh-huh. So pasta, polenta, rice, and being proud of being Italians. Also because the, the very idea of being Italian was new. Right. I mean, it, Italy was late to the game in terms of being a unified country. Right. 1861, mm-hmm. Italy was unified, but that was only a partial unification even because the, the capital was in Turin mm-hmm. initially, and then it went to Florence. And it wasn't until 19, or 19, uh, no, sorry, uh, 1870 I hope I said 1861 before. It wasn't until 1870 that Rome became the capital when um, the the um, Stato Pontificio, uh, the Papal State, uh, was finally defeated, and Rome became the capital. Then, so so really, there were there was 50 years between when that happened and when the fascists came in. Well, so I want to ask you a little bit about the actual people that you talked to. Um, mm-hmm. how, how did you find them? And what do you think you learned from them? Because one of the things I really felt that I got out of the book was going in thinking, oh, this is going to be about the history of food. And I realized it was the history of Italy and food was just the, the lens that I was looking through to find the history, um, which was really fascinating. H- how did you find these people and what, what did you learn from them? Right, I think that um, as well, you know, when you set out to write a book, it never is really, it, it has a life of its own. It does what it wants to do and it goes where it wants to go within within a certain amount of control. And because I thought that, um, you know, I know my culinary history, I know it uh, from books, I know the food, but knowing it through these women was something that, that now I've, again, I've lived in Italy for 30 years. This is something that completely changed my relationship with the way I see Italy, the way I live here, the way I, I perceive of the whole presentation of Italian food today, the concept of evolution, of, of uh, culinary evolution. So when I went and, and started these interviews, I of course had my list of questions that, you know, I was going to go in and here I am researcher and, um, and I discovered that they had something, uh, quite something else to say, that I was really just going in 
looking for these little nuggets about food when there was this much larger picture that needed and, and story that needed to be told of these women's lives. Um, and, and that, that the way that I, to get it, to get that story then, or the way that that story came out was through the portal of food, because it's something that is immediate that allowed me also into the house because I wanted to talk about food of what they called, you know, the, of the old days. Uh-huh. And there's something about, about Italians who are born and lived their, their formative years uh, before and during World War, World War II. So, so again, fascism is from 1922 to 1943 even though we know much more about Nazism, fascism was, was, it, it was much more embedded and took, went on for a much longer period of time. How did you find them? Yes. How did you, how did oh, you? The, the way they write, I'm going to lead into the way that I found them. Um, there is, there's an expression that I, and I talk about this in the introduction of my book. There's an expression in, in, Italy, trusting is good and not trusting is better. <laughs> so, um, and it doesn't even, it doesn't even rhyme or, or sound sing-songy in, in Italian. It's just so flat and true. So there's a, a wariness that people have here about talking about things. And so my way in was always through people that I knew, people in my circle, and that eventually branched out and allowed me to travel throughout Italy. But it always had to be through a, um, what's called no persona di fiducia, someone who, is, who, you, who you trust, who they trust. And, and eventually the word got out to the point where when I had finished doing all of my research, I was in the end turning people away because so-and-so heard that I had interviewed her cousin and can't I interview her as well? And people started to come out and wanting me to, to go and um, without me having to, to go around and look for people. So, but it was always in a situation of trust and often with the trusted person there who, who was present. Oh, that, that sounds really, really, um, really interesting. And did you find people pretty forthcoming once they got started? Yeah, uh, uh, the problem was not so much talking about fascism, which I, I addressed always relatively indirectly, again, through food. But one of the problems was they didn't uh, understand why I would want to, why I'd be interested in talking to them when most of them, because it was very standard for, for girls to, to take them out of school, even though that was not what was, what was the legal standard, but to take them out of school when they were, had done four years of elementary school. And so they couldn't understand what they could possibly have to say to me that would be of interest 
when they were when they felt uneducated com- comparatively once once things got rolling it was always delightful because i had to learn part of as well of learning the right questions to ask them and not my my culinary things about did you did, did, did i started off you know artuzzi is is the big thing you know like here um you know craig claiborne or something like that mm-hmm. of but um so if, if you don't know who Artusi is, but, and, and I, I just assumed that they all, you know, because he's the big cultural name here. I mean, they didn't know who Artusi was. And so my starting off with, you know, with those sorts of questions was really, was really ridiculous <laughs> with women who, I mean, some of them with the release form even were not capable of signing their own name. So that was the problem and not that, and, and once they got talking and I had what I was saying was, I had as well of learning the right questions, I also learned the vocabulary that they were using to refer to things. When I was talking about fascism, using the vocabulary from the 1930s and 40s that they knew. And so, and that made them feel much more comfortable. Oh, that's really interesting. Really interesting. Hmm. So tell me how it changed your whole thought process about the mythology. Give me an example of one of the myths that you had perhaps believed and you saw it then later as a myth. Um, I think the big, the, the, the biggest one, and this is the one going to be one that if I can just go for the huge one, sure. um, is the, the Mediterranean diet. So the importance of, um, of your family pig and, and the lard that you were going to produce from that um, the the love of the flavor of that and the pork etc even though meat was eaten very rarely but the mythology about olive oil as if things were dripping in olive oil like they are now because they certainly are now or any understanding at that time um of of the mediterranean diet people eating you know eggplant peppers and zucchini everywhere it, it, it just it just wasn't. And even tomatoes, for example. Um, so the, the tomato arrives in Italy in the 1540s, the earliest date that I have that it's mentioned 1544, but I don't need to be precise about it and geeky. But then here I am in Lombardia, which is in the north of Italy. Um, a, a 400 years later and she's telling me that they didn't have tomatoes they did have tomato paste and she knew what that was so so those sort of, those sorts of things uh-huh. that this idea of everyone eating this mediterranean diet and um the groaning tables of of food sauce dripping off of pasta um that's absolutely I mean you've when you when you read that book and when you finish reading that book you don't 
have any kind of feeling of abundance. Right, right. Or of the or of the Mediterranean diet. There are no whole grains. People were not eating this simple abundance and not just because it was the fascist era. Then you move into some problematic times. Italy invades in 1935 Ethiopia. Sanctions are run against them in 1938. Hitler and Mussolini join forces for the Pact of Steel, then that's the point where Mussolini becomes very unpopular. They enter into war in 1940 together. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just because, and that's when you have rationing and things get, things get really bad. Uh There was a tightening of the, of the belt and everything, but, but a general sense of positivity that things were, and of being Italian, an idea of being Italian that came together under Mussolini and of being a nation and of moving towards one thing, even the invasion of Ethiopia, the the nation was behind him on that in 1935. But then then the, the scarcity of food began. So, so in, yeah. your, in your book, um, mm. and you're you're talking to to all of all of these people and everything. One of the things you do talk about is pizza. So, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I ended up <laughs> just because because we have we have our these ideas about timelessness and Italy and what has always been here. And one of those things is, is pizza. Um, um, another is, is pasta. Yes, pasta is everywhere, but not all the time. Not everyone had, had, could afford it or have access to it. Um, but, but pizza, yes, was something that uh, there's a woman in Umbria who she went on about you know the first time they she had pizza and it was sometime around the 1970s and the Neapolitans came up, but the idea of leisure and leisure food came out after after the war, and um, that pizza was a way for people to go out and have eat something that was inexpensive and be sociable and be out, be outside. There wasn't, but it wasn't a widespread thing before that. Uh-huh. In fact, it was very much associated with um, Naples, which is associated, which was associated various times in history with cholera, with filth, um, and, and pizza was not something that, you know, it was, it was an admirable food. It had to acquire that idea of leisure. And the way that it did that as well was because tourists were coming in, looking for pizza, not finding it. And it was suddenly this way that, that um, in Reconstruction Italy, or the when the economic miracle takes off, it's called the economic miracle, when Italy just in leaps and bounds, um, developed industries and their economy soared really. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of that was through, 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 through tourism and giving tourists what they wanted, which was pizza, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, I, I, I can, I can definitely imagine. And of course, I'm here in New Orleans, and we had a huge influx of immigrants from Sicily. Sicily. But that was that was before fascism. It was due to another reason to to leave Sicily. But um, I think that yeah, there was a huge a huge wave of Italians um, left when there was something that was called the Great Depression, which was actually 1876, 1873, I can't remember which one, but um, anyway, around there, and a, a, a huge outpouring at that period of time yeah. um, into South America and into North America. Yes, sorry, I you interrupted know, and, you. And, and the, the, the thing that was so interesting about New Orleans is that almost everyone who came who was from Italy was actually from Sicily, and mm-hmm. there were Sicilian oh, boats from from Sicily to New Orleans directly, and more Sicilians came into the U.S. through the port of New Orleans than through Ellis hmm. Island. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's and it, yeah, and, and because you would you would tend to go where your enclave was. So right. um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, they tend to be traceable. In fact, I was just do recently doing some research about Abruzzo and the 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 pockets and neighborhoods where the, the Abruzzese would go um, because you wanted to be around your in your diaspora, right? Right, exactly. And they lived in the French Quarter, it became known as Little Palermo, and it had a very impactful influence on the food of New Orleans. Uh, which I always think is is really interesting. And there are things that we do in New Orleans that the rest of the South doesn't do. And some of those things are are because of the Sicilians. For example, Hmm. we stuff our vegetables with breadcrumbs and the rest of the South stuffs its vegetables with rice. And Hmm. that's very much not a, a, a Southern thing to use breadcrumbs like that. And it's just, you grow up always stuffing your vegetables with breadcrumbs without an analysis of where it came from or anything like that. But it's definitely tied to Sicilians. And if you look earlier than when they came at early recipes, it was rice. So it's kind Mm. of, it's very, very interesting. Now, I want to ask you one more question about um, people that you interviewed. Why did you decide to talk to Dario Cecchini? Ah, okay. Um, and yeah, that's a valid question because I do focus on women. One of the reasons that I focus on women in my in my book, well, first of all, because they are the gatekeepers of food, uh, certainly at that time in um, in Italian, as 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 is true today. But I also wanted to have the voice of women, which doesn't come out, it tends not to come out, the voice of uh, the unsung voice of, of women who are also didn't have the benefit, most of them of, of education. And um, before they, you know, slip away into the folds of time. But at the same time, I did decide to interview Dario as the epilogue of this, because his family has had a butcher shop in um, in Tuscany, in Panzano, for the the for the, the two hundred and fifty years or so, 
And he is considered kind of a repository of culinary memory. And so I, I was interested in, in tapping, tapping his mind about, about to get a closing kind of perspective on where he sees Italy as being now. Um, so he's not considered, uh, we did do a, we did do an interview, a formal interview, and it, it, it's done in the same way as the, as the other women, but, but he is the epilogue and not part of the construction, just as the, the cap on that. He's not so, as old. And he's a wonderful dynamic figure. He's a really wonderful person to talk to. He's not as old as most of the women either, is he? Oh, not at all. Not at all. He's um, he's not even 70 years old. He was in his mid-60s when, when I spoke to him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what did you, did you feel that what your interview with him was sort of capping um, everything that you had learned? Did he say anything that made you change any attitudes or anything like that? Um, he, I, 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 he had some interesting things to say about, because what's going on now is a shift from things that used to be done in the home and they're now becoming artisan foods. And, and how that shift is taking place within venues like Italy, okay? Uh -huh. um, and the problem of maintaining a tradition and commercializing it is an extremely fine line when you get into a, a huge um, artisan mall. We can't even call it a supermarket, mall. Uh -huh. it, it's a a mall within itself. The maintenance of 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 the word artisan, and I thought that that was very interesting. That, um, and I I do these podcasts on my um, sort of pseudo podcasts on my Instagram account with people who are involved in pasta pasta artisans, and we talk about what it means to be an artisan. Um, and the, the fact that these skills have moved from women's hands into an artisan sector and, and men as well, because you're talking about making, making salami and things that used to be done in the home, um, uh, pasta making as well. And, and um, so that was, that was a very interesting part of the conversation for me um about about how that movement and you can only for him an artisan needs to either have his or her hands directly on the food or be able to personally manage other people i mean personally in a in a present sort of way manage other people who are um executing that food then mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really interesting perspective. So Karima, I want to thank you so much for being with us 
Um, people can find. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> people can find you on Instagram. What is your your handle? My handle is historical Italian food. That's where I I publish a few times a week. I'm currently doing a series on historical pasta dishes. And that's my project for this year. Last year, I did 50 different posts about regional pastas. And this year, they're going to be exclusively historical pastas. I did one, my, my most recent one, for example, was Ethiopian, an Ethiopian spaghetti dish talking about that period of time um, when for the invasion and the colonization of Ethiopia and the influence of Italian foodways that remained in Ethiopia even after uh, Italy then eventually ceded it as a, as a colony. So um, yeah, so historical Italian food is where I do most of my activity. And then I also have a website where I look at things more in depth that is called The uh, Eternal Table, not to be confused with my, my second book, The Eternal Table. Okay. And um, yeah. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Liz. It was wonderful talking to you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.